0: Would you join with me in prayer and ask for God's grace on us to understand this? Father, we confess to you that we are often slow of heart and dull of mind. And ask that through the power of your spirit, because of the merits of Christ, that you would sharpen our minds and, and soften our hearts, uh, that we would want, uh, we would be hungry to hear from your word, and, and not just to hear it and to learn it, but then to to walk in light of it. Uh, Father, I, I know that there are souls here that are, are broken and struggling in a thousand areas, uh, many of which I will not even touch on today. And um, they are hungry uh, to be comforted, to be strengthened, to be encouraged. And, and a word will not be given to them uh, except that of the glory of Christ. And I pray that that you would honor the word that if Christ be lifted up, that he will draw all men and women to himself. And so, Father, would you, uh, through the power of your spirit, exalt the Son that we might find you to be a great and a glorious Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, there are, um, I love reading about World War II. Uh, World War II is great stories in it, and, uh, and particularly unique battles that are decisive in, in really the, the winning of the war. I think about uh, the Battle of Midway, for example. It was a, a great naval engagement uh, where the U.S. Navy and the Japanese Navy met about 200 miles off the coast of the island of Midway. Huge, decisive battle, uh, one in which we were outgunned in many, many ways, and yet timing and I would say the providence of God was such that, that four out of the six aircraft carriers of the Japanese fleet were sunk or damaged that day. Or the Battle of Britain on the Atlantic side, this great air war between the British forces, some American, and the German Air Force, and uh, just the faithfulness and the doggedness that they did to, to, to maintain superiority over the air um, in that war, just Amazing how, when you look at the World War II, that the whole war, that there are certain battles that are decisive, that are critical. Uh, it was understood then, but really understood later, on how decisive those were. Sometimes you can just pass over them. They don't seem like, well, that's just one battle out of many battles. No, those were unique battles, that, that if they hadn't been won, that, then really the outcome could have been very, very uncertain. Well, as we look at Scripture today, there's going to be a battle that is often overlooked. It's a critical battle, this battle between Christ, Jesus, and Satan in the wilderness. And we kind of go over it's the temptation of Jesus, and we pass it by, and we don't realize how incredibly decisive this battle was. In fact, let me try to give you an example. John Milton was a British poet in the 17th century. And he wrote a very famous book called Paradise Lost. And this is about the sin of Adam and Eve and how, how they lost paradise due to their sin. But he wrote an, a, a, a sequel to it called Paradise Regained. It's a shorter book, but it talks about how, how Jesus regained paradise through his faithfulness. Now, you'd think, well, it would be maybe at his birth that he spoke about. Or you'd think maybe at, at the crucifixion where sin was defeated. Or perhaps you think it was at the resurrection where death was defeated. How did paradise get regained? And do you know what it's on? It's on the temptation of Christ. It's on the 40 days in the wilderness. He saw so decisive was this battle between Jesus and the tempter that this really is where paradise was regained. Significant passage of Scripture. So what I want to do is just look at this and... and, uh, we all know what temptation's like, but this is a unique temptation. And uh, what I would like to do in the first part of the sermon is just have you be spectators. I, I just want you, you're like in the bleachers watching this. It's kind of like the baptism last week. You know, this baptism, we're, we're kind of in the bleachers just watching Jesus live and act. Profound truth. We're, we're in the spectators here watching this drama unfold. At the end of the sermon, then there'll be, you won't just be a recipient, but you'll be a participant. I'll try to draw you in with some applications. I'm going to follow the structure of the text. It's very simple. You see, in verse 1, it's going to be just kind of set in the context. This is where the battle is going to be fought. It's in the wilderness, and I'll explain that. And then you have these three temptations, and you have these three responses. So that's the battle itself. And then in verse 11, it's kind of the aftermath of the battle. And what follows. So turn with me, if you will, and we'll read it together. And then, by God's grace, I'll try to explain it in a way that you will be, as the desire of my heart has been this week, just overwhelmed with Christ. And then, where you are in life, I trust that He, by His power, will minister and encourage you. So, Matthew 4 1, He says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, He was hungry. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, the the scene is more involved than you may have originally thought. So you see the word then, and in Matthew that's kind of a sequential word. What happens next? Then, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now listen, It's hard to understand this apart from the baptism. Remember the glory of the baptism. You have the scene where Jesus is accepting the call to be the suffering son, to be the Messiah. He's going to take the plan of redemption to the end and complete it. He accepts that call and submits himself to God. Do you remember what happens? The spirit then descends upon Jesus and equips him to do ministry, equips him to be faithful And then what do you have? You have the confirmation of God, the voice from heaven coming down saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God is confirming Jesus to be his son to do this work. So that happens immediately. He's drawn into the wilderness. Now he's going to be tempted by Satan. We see that he's sent to be tempted. That's the intention. But notice who it is that's sending him. He's sent by the spirit. The Spirit is sending him. It's God's intention to test the Son. It's God's intention to bring the Son to a battle. This is God's doing. You see it. The Spirit led him. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, the Greek word is he's thrown into the wilderness. It's to be thrown into the wilderness to fight Satan. Now, you, you do know, or you will after I tell you, that the word temptation and testing is the same Greek word. And so you see a testing and a temptation. Now, when Satan tempts, he seeks to destroy. God doesn't tempt. God doesn't plant evil desire in the heart of a man, leading him to sin, but God does test. And God tests to prove and to confirm and to display himself in people. And so you have both an operation here. Do you see this? That God is using Satan and his temptation to test Jesus. Now, why would God want to test Jesus? Well, God wants to test Jesus to show us that he is worthy to be followed. God is testing Jesus so that you will see him in battle and say, he is a glorious king. He is worthy to be believed. He is worthy to be loved and to be followed. So God is setting the stage so that you will marvel over the sun. But why in the wilderness? You've read that maybe 50 times. Well, the wilderness is huge in Scripture. The wilderness is a place where Israel was always tested. In fact, let me just give you one example. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says, And you shall remember... The whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. So you remember the story. God draws Israel out of Egypt. He calls them, you know what he calls them? He calls them my son. In fact, in Isaiah, he says my firstborn. So Israel is God's son. And where is he leading them? He's leading them into the wilderness. And he's going to test them there. But you know the history. You know the story. They failed him repeatedly. They didn't walk as a son. They didn't walk according to the commandments. They didn't walk by faith. They didn't walk trusting God. They failed. They failed repeatedly. and God, in judgment, draws them into captivity in Babylon over their failure. God, but in grace, restores them to the land. They continue to not walk as a son. And so here we are in the New Testament now. All these years have passed, 400 years of prophetic silence. And and you know the people had to be wondering, what about the plan of God? I mean, God had promised to Adam that he would have a seed to crush the head of the serpent. God promised to Abraham that his seed would bless the nation's. It was going to be through the nation of Israel that a seed would come and bless all the world through redemption. In other words, we do have a problem. We are dying. Every one of us will. We struggle with sin. We're not reconciled to God. And so who is going to come and deliver us? Well, Israel was supposed to, but they failed. So what happens to the plan of God? Who's going to be a light to the nations? Israel as a son failed. What is God? Does that mean God has failed? I mean, that's what we're supposed to be on the edges of our chairs over. Who is going to deliver? Well, out of the ashes of Israel, another son goes into the wilderness. Matthew is it pains for you and I to see in these first four chapters the idea that Jesus is walking parallel to what Israel did. Why? Because he's going to replace Israel. He's going to complete what Israel didn't do. I mean, the the first four chapters we see over and over. Think about it for a minute. And, And I know this is somewhat redundant because Matthew's been redundant. Matthew has been repeating this theme because in the first four chapters, next week we'll talk about the beginning of Jesus's ministry. All the way up into this point, he's describing this is Jesus. This is the one who's now going to begin preaching this message. He's setting the scene beautifully. So when you look at the parallel between Jesus and Israel, think about it. Israel is drawn into Egypt to sojourn. Jesus goes into Egypt. Israel suffers under the hand of a king seeking to kill its children. So Jesus is threatened by a king that does kill male children. Israel is drawn out of Egypt by God. Jesus, according to Hosea and Matthew chapter 2, is drawn out of Egypt as well. Israel comes through the waters of the Red Sea, which Paul says was a baptism. Jesus comes through the waters of baptism. Israel is called the dove in Hosea 7 Jesus has a dove when he is baptized. Israel is tempted in the wilderness for 40 years, testing him, trying them, finding out, are they the son of God? Jesus is tested and tempted for 40 days in the desert. is that amazing? That Jesus is the son of God. He's been tested. He's going to be tried. God has sent the son into the wilderness so that you and I could look back and say, Jesus did everything obediently, faithfully. He's a worthy son. He is an adequate savior. I mean, it is incredible that that Matthew is just holding up. This is Jesus. Now, why is it so important to draw these parallels? Because it proves the faithfulness of God. God's promise to deliver our hope. You know, all of us are aging. We're marching towards that date of, of moving from this life. We, we have unreconciled relationships with one another. We're out of sorts with God. And so all the help that we need in deliverance and forgiveness, somebody needs to bring it. And Matthew's showing us that Jesus is able. He's an able. He's a sufficient. The whole plan of God, the reversal of Adam's sin, It all rests on his shoulders. So as Jesus strides into the battlefield, our hopes are with him. You have no other hope. He's the last one. He's the best one that can do it for us. We're in the bleachers. He's our man. If he doesn't do it, literally, no one ever could or can. He is the one carrying the mantle of God forward. That's the scene in verse 1. Think of the backlog That was just in a verse. Okay, so we meet his opponent. Look at his opponent. His opponent is called the devil. In this passage, he's also referred to as Satan or the tempter. You haven't really heard anything about him before in Matthew just yet. But he's on this scene. He is a person. He's not a force. He's not an idea. He is, as Scripture displays, opposed to God. He's opposed to God's people. If you think of him as a man in red tights and he's got an anger issue, you're only fooling yourself. He's an enemy of God. He's your enemy. He's the enemy of Christ, opposed to you. And he comes out and he's going to tempt Christ, just like he tempted Adam, just like he tempted Israel. He fell, he fell, now he's going to tempt Christ. Now, when we think about temptation... I want you to think a little broader initially. I want you to think that temptation really can be generalized into this, that seeking to lead us to distrust, dislike, find discontentment in God, in his plan, in the way he made you, in the way you look, in your friends, that Satan seeks to tempt. Tempting is leading you to act or to think or to work for your benefit. It's trying to move you from being a self-giving person to a self-serving person. You Remember how last week the triune God orbits around each other. In other words, God is glorious in their self-giving love. So we, we are called to orbit around the triune God. In other words, make him the center of our lives, and that's where we find our greatest joy. But what temptation seeks to do is move God out of the center of the orbit and put ourselves in there so that we want everybody to center around us. You see it in kids. You see it in adults. It's a little dressed up, but it's the same thing. How does this affect me? How is this going to bless me? What's it saying about me? It's about me. That's the direction that temptation goes, seeking to promote me. And we're going to see that in this temptation. Let's look at each one. So we've gone from the battle scene. Now we're going to go to these temptations. Look with me in the first one. It says the tempter comes after 40 days and 40 nights. And in Mark's gospel, it indicates that Jesus had been tempted the entire time. And we just had these three temptations recorded. But you can count that there were many more than three. But Let's look at these. He says this. He says, if you're the son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, Jesus is a man, so he's hungry, he's famished, he's fatigued, you can imagine. And, and Satan comes, and he says, if you're the Son of God. Now, some people think this is a challenge to Jesus. Kind of like, well, I'm not sure if you are or not, but if you are. And, and the Greek construction of the sentence doesn't support that. It, 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 there's an assumption he is the Son of God. In fact, God had already confirmed that in chapter 317. So what Satan is really doing is he's coming up and saying, Since you're the Son of Man, why don't you turn these stones into bread? In other words, the implication is God your father, since you're his son, God your father hasn't done a very good job. Look at how hungry and and, and famished you are. So you should probably display your power and make some bread. I mean, Satan's not asking him to make caviar. There's stones all over the place, just turn a couple of them into bread. You have the power. You're surely hungry. God wouldn't want you to be this hungry. The temptation, of course, is that Satan is looking for Jesus to use his powers in a way inconsistent with his mission. Satan is looking for Jesus to to kind of help himself out, not to trust in God, uh, to to make up for it himself, that where God is lacking, I'll just go ahead and fill in the blanks. I'll take care of myself. I'll take matters into my own hands. Now, you know the modern-day parallels. I mean... It could be the the man or the woman waiting for a Christian mate and they can't find one. They meet a very nice unbeliever and they think, well, you know, I've waited and he hasn't provided. And and you say, no, 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 you you want to be yoked with a believer. Say, no, I've waited long. God hasn't provided. He's given me the gift of marriage. I just need to go in this direction. I'm going to do for myself what God hasn't done yet. Or the businesswoman or the businessman who's working and he's striving to be a Christian, he's seeking to not play the political games of the company, and everybody else is passing by. They're playing the games, they're talking half-truths, they're getting credit. And they start thinking, I've got to get in, I've got to start playing the games, I have to start doing what they're doing. i got to live, Tom. I mean, everybody's passing by me. Everybody else is getting promotions, I'm just stuck here where I am. Or, or perhaps the man in a troubled marriage. And he's thinking divorce. He doesn't have the grounds for it. But he's just thinking, you know what, Tom, I, God wants me to be happy. God doesn't want me to be unhappy, does he, Tom? And and so we begin to do what we see God is not doing for us, and we do it. Now notice what Jesus' response is going to be. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But what's interesting, it comes from a a bigger verse in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And here's what it says. And and Moses now is speaking to the children about to take the land, and he's speaking about God. He says, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what Jesus is saying here is that it was God's intention to let him hunger so that he might see God as the provider of all things. In other words, God will, also, God will draw us into wildernesses where he's not meeting our immediate needs, but he's going to. He's testing us. He's trying us. He's leading us to learn dependence, that we would only wait for him, that we would wait for his deliverance. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was hungry. He was called to fast. He was called to wait. God would come to his aid, wouldn't he? In verse 11, you see that he sends ministering spirits to care for him. I mean, there's a place, folks, that you want to keep moving. You want to manipulate the system. You want to press the buttons. You want to drive the car. And God's calling you, just wait, and I will display my care for you. When they waited in the wilderness, and God ran down manna on them, can you imagine? Glad we waited. Glad we waited. Instead of trying to do it ourselves. That's the first temptation. Don't trust in God. He's not going to come through for you. You better do it yourself. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 just wait. He'll feed you. He'll care for you. Folks, if you're breathing right now, It's because God wants you alive. He's giving you breath. He's causing your body to breathe. I know you're inhaling and exhaling. He's behind it all. If he gives you breath, he'll give you what you need in life. That's the call. Look at the second temptation. It's a little different. He says, if you're the son of God, repeating this. Throw yourself down, for it's written he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Literally, you won't even stub your toe. Now, this is just demonic right here. Jesus has given him scripture, and now Satan is giving him scripture back, and and Satan's going to twist it to Jesus. He's really saying this, hey, you trust God so much, don't you? Look, you're even going to wait for him to give you bread. So you trust in his word so much? Well, show me how much you trust him by throwing yourself down off this temple, we don't know where in the temple it was. Josephus, a first century historian, said that the distance between the top of the temple and the rocks below was, was great. Some report as much as 180 feet. And so the temptation is this. Prove God. In other words, prove God to be faithful. Prove yourself to be his son. In other words, if you throw yourself down, surely because you are the son of God, I believe you are, he'll surely catch you up. He'll surely take care of you. In other words, test God in this. Show us. We want to see it. You have such faith in God? Then throw yourself down. Now, of course, the modern day parallels are, I think, equally clear. Oftentimes, people will act recklessly without the counsel of any other believers. They'll make a move that benefits them. And then they're going to hold God accountable to help and deliver them. Well, God, you promised to help me. You know, we can act without regard for reason. We can act without regard for the scriptures. And we just behave in a way, and then we claim a promise of God, and then we somehow want to hold God hostage to meet me in my need, even though it was absolute foolishness to get in the spot that I am now in. And we want to claim the promises of God and manipulate God to make him prove himself to us. And this is why Jesus says, Man does not test God. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God's word is sure, but God's word is not there for you to hold him captive to it. You are there to believe in it and to respond to it and to act by faith toward it. But we're not surely called to hold God and say, prove yourself to us as if we're on the seat of justice, calling him to account to us. Be careful. Oftentimes we do. We act in ways that are reckless, that are without regard for biblical truth, without any counsel of believers. And then we get ourselves in some deep water, some hot water, and then we start claiming God. And when God doesn't deliver us in the manner and the timing that we want, then we somehow hold him short. Maybe he's not so faithful. Maybe he doesn't love me so much. And then you begin to make accusations towards God because he hasn't come through when you put yourself in the position you did. I believe God delivers us from stupidity. I'm a walking testimony of that. But to walk in reckless disregard and then hold him accountable is to test God. Okay, look at the third temptation with me. He says he takes him up to this high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Now, there is no high mountain that he can go to to show all the kingdoms of the world. We know that. It's a visionary. It's a supernatural experience that that he lays before him the kingdoms that that in part were given to Satan at the fall. And he lays them before and all of their glory. And he says, if you worship me, I will give you all these. Now, what, what's the temptation here? Well, the temptation, I believe, is just a shortcut. Just bend a little, Jesus. Just compromise. Avoid the suffering. Avoid the humiliation. Avoid the death. I, I, I mean, I mean it, it's, there's a better route to kingship, Jesus, if you just give me a little worship. I will give you all these things, and guess what? This is the selling point. No cross. You don't have to do the cross. That cross where you will be cursed of God. It isn't just the physical pain I want you to think about here. Avoiding the cross meant this. That he would be avoiding carrying all the sin of mankind on him. That he would be avoiding the Father's justice, pleasure, and wrath. The separation that is mysterious to me, but between the triune God, that God would have to forsake the Son as he bears sin. You won't have to do that. I mean, can you imagine? Jesus, it could have played with his mind. I mean, Jesus is thinking, well, if I do get the kingdoms, then I could get rid of all the tyrants. I could establish justice. I could bring peace. I could help the poor. I mean, think of all the good that he could have done without the cross. I mean, it could have been tempting. I mean, I think about us. Let's go with modern-day parallel here. You know, the end justifies the means for many of us, does it not? I, I mean, we can justify sin if there's a sanctified ending. You, you, you scratch my back, I scratch your little compromise, Tom. What's wrong with that? You don't have to be so stuck in this way, Tom. Just bend a little and look what we can get. Think about where we can move. You know, if, if I just play the, Tom, if I play the lotto, I win, I'll help the church out. Makes sense. It's a promise you know a lot of people were making. When that power ball was so high. I mean, we, we compromise, we justify because we want that. And, and we just we just sanctify the end and then it's all OK. Now, look what Jesus says. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I mean, I think this has got to be the hardest and the easiest temptation for Jesus. It, it had to be the easiest in terms of identifying it as a clear temptation and a sin, but it had to be the hardest because of the offer that it was making. But Jesus knew that to be the son, to be the obedient one, Adam fell, Israel fell, for Jesus not to fall, to be the son he would have to suffer. The cross was the way, there was no other way. He was going to submit himself to the plan of God. So here we are at the end of these three temptations. And aren't we happy to hear him say, be gone. be gone, Satan. I'm done with you. It was a victory. Jesus is the one left standing. He was faithful. He was complete. He walked out perfect obedience to God. He is worthy. There would be more battles ahead. This was a key battle. This was a key battle which revealed to him, really revealed to us, that now he can begin his ministry. Before, he hadn't started his ministry. Next week, he starts his ministry. He had to prove himself to be the son. He's proving to us that he is worthy of your adoration and your love. People, this is where we're spectators. Yeah, I, I just want to stand. If we were in those bleachers, I just want to stand and clap for him. You did it. You were faithful. Adam wasn't. Israel wasn't. Tom wouldn't have been. But you were faithful for us. You are the son of God. You will march victoriously. You will save. You will deliver. That's what I'm calling you to say. I mean, that is a beautiful picture of Christ. I know you're at a thousand different places right now. But this is the savior that we promote, that we uphold. This is the one that we say, if he be lifted up, he will draw all men and women to himself. It's profound. The whole plan of redemption rested on him, walking faithfully, obedient, according to the commands, in love with the Father, obedient. And he does that for us. For us. Okay, so what is our role here? So we've just been spectating. We've just been kind of looking in. Well, here's our role. This is a critical connection to make. He's the Son of God. Now, it's interesting. In the Gospel of John, he says... Whoever receives, um, he says, whoever believes in my name and receives him who sent me uh, will become children of God. Children not born of natural descent or a husband's decision or human will, but born of God. So the Christian is considered now a son of God, just like Jesus is a son of God and a daughter of God. And here's the thing. If he faces temptation, so will you. Temptation is normal to this life temptation is part of the fabric of this life you and i will be tempted over and over to distrust god to make our own way to hold god's feet to the fire to make sure he keeps his promises we're going to be tempted to be worshiped we're going to be tempted to satisfy our friends needs so that we fit in with them all right listen to charles spurgeon the great pastor in london in the 19th century He says, though you become greatly sanctified by the Holy Spirit, expect that great dog of hell will bark at you still. Don't suppose that it's only the worldly minded who have dreadful thoughts and blasphemous temptations. For even spiritually minded persons endure the same. And in the holiest position, we may allow the darkest temptation. The utmost concentration of spirit will not insure you against satanic temptation. Christ was consecrated through and through. It was his meat and drink to do the will of him that sent him. And yet he was tempted. Like the old knights, in times of battle, we must sleep with our helmet and our breastplate buckled on. For the arch deceiver will seize our first unguarded hour to make us his prey. So we've got to recognize that that is part of the fabric of this life. You will be tempted. I am tempted. It will go on until the day that you stop breathing. So what do we do? How do we face this temptation? Well, let me just give you a couple truths to end with. Number one, you have to face temptation, understanding the sovereignty of God. As Jesus rested in the father leading him to this battle, so God will lead you in that battle. You know, it does my heart great good to understand that God is sovereign when I'm being tempted. Listen, if I was subject to a host of evils coming down, converging upon me, playing with my lusts and appetites, I'd be awash in failure. Absolutely. I don't have the gearing. I don't have the metal to stand up against the the playing with my lusts. But I have the assurance that God will uphold me. We have the assurance that God will not let us be tempted beyond our ability and that he will provide a way of escape for us that God will do not give in. Do not think that when temptation comes, you're just going to get bowled over. God is in the midst of this. He's sovereign in this. He will not let you be tempted. That doesn't mean we don't fall, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but surely we are not bound to failure. God has assured us of that. But secondly, we also face temptation turning to Christ when you, in your spirit, find you being tempted, find yourself being tempted, which you know, if you're a Christian, you know there's a signal, there's a flag, you know when something's coming on. And the call is to turn to Christ. Christ has been tempted far greater than any of us. I mean, think about it. You know, I only know the power of temptation to the point before I cave. Once I cave, I don't know the power anymore because guess what? I'm not tempted anymore. I'm giving into it. Only Jesus knows the pure power of temptation because he's the only one that has never given into it. If you could last all that way, you would know the power of it. I'd crumble halfway up, so I don't know the full power. He does. So in facing temptation, we must turn to Jesus. Here's the other thing. Jesus had the power to do whatever he was tempted with. Oftentimes, I'm tempted with things I can't even do anything about. So, really, the temptation isn't that great because I couldn't act on it if I wanted to. But he had the power to do it, and he didn't. And so we turn to Jesus. We repair to him. We find grace in him. We find strength in him. We sang part of the song, but in Hebrews he says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So if that's the case, the writer goes on and says, let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He's able to deliver you. Folks, when you are tempted, we turn to Jesus. Jesus is able to comfort. Listen to what Thomas Brooks, an English Puritan, said, he said, In every temptation, let us look up to the crucified Christ who is fitted and qualified to support tempted souls. O oh, my soul, whenever you are assaulted, let the wounds of Christ be your city of refuge where you may fly and live. Turn to Christ, seeking grace and strength and encouragement. But not just turning to Christ, be filled with the Spirit. Jesus resisted Satan for 40 days. How? Filled with the Spirit. The same spirit that dwells in Jesus dwells in the believer. Now, I'm not asking you to try harder. I'm not asking you to be better. I'm asking you to humble yourself that when tempted, that you turn and you ask the Father to fill you with the spirit that you may say no to the temptation. Listen, Jesus said very clearly. He says, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children in Luke eleven thirteen, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I'm only asking you to ask him. You may not even have a desire in the middle of your temptation. Ask him, would you give me of your spirit that I may turn aside from this temptation? You know, Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer of the 16th century, German reformer, he was asked, how do you fight Satan? Here's what he said. He said, well, when he comes knocking upon the door of my heart, I ask and ask who lives here? The dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but has moved out. Now I live here. (laughs) With the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God moves the presence of Christ within you. Christ dwelling within us, the hope of glory. That Christ dwells within us through the power of the Spirit. So we ask to be filled with the Spirit that we might turn aside from temptation. Let me give you two more. We face temptation with biblical truth. Biblical truth. Jesus resisted Satan with the word. Now, I'm not talking about some, you know, bringing out the scriptures like a pistol. You know, I'm going to quote this scripture to him. You know, it's some magical incantation. You know, it's some uh, Nick reminded me, kind of a Harry Potter wand that we just wand and dispel Jesus. You know, I'm not even going to say, hey, you need to memorize scripture. I, I do encourage memorizing scripture. But the memorization of scripture as an act in itself doesn't repel Satan. It's the truth of God that is in the scripture that fills and fuels your mind, that you begin to see God as greater than the temptation. So, folks, it works like this. So I see a beautiful woman on Fox News, and I'm tempted to go there and see the picture that's there. And I realize, no, the pleasure of God is greater than the momentary satisfaction of lust for me. And if I reject that, if I reject that and I pursue God, I find his pleasure in obedience to be greater than the momentary pleasure. And then all the guilt that follows it, you know, because that's got to be part of the equation, right? You can't just look at the pleasure you get from the picture. All the guilt that follows it, that's got to be contained within the decision if I'm going to do it. And you think, no, his pleasure is far better because God's good. He's gracious. He's given us a son. I think about the greatness of God. And all that he is for us and to us and will be with us. I think that's better than a picture that's probably airbrushed. And so you turn aside. But it's the truth of God's character. If you're only the reading the Bible here, then your souls are very, they're very much endangered. The scriptures are what f- teaches you about God. And if you're not in the scriptures, you don't know about God. If you don't know about God, you don't have the resources to fight. And then last I would say this. That we face temptation uh, with the gospel. And here's what I mean. Many of you have failed repeatedly. You you may be feeling quite guilty now. uh, Borderline despair. And you think, why should I even try? It's a problem. When you fail once, you you have the tendency to justify continuing failure. Since I've already failed, I might as well keep failing. And and, and here's here's what the gospel does for us in temptation. The temptation to keep giving in to failure. The gospel reminds you that you have a new identity. You're not, you may have been immoral. You may have been a cheat. You may have been a liar. You're not those things anymore. Christ dying for you gives you a new identity. You're now in Christ. You're now forgiven. You're now adopted. You're now in the family of God. You now have a different name. You now have a different family. You're not the same. You've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been redeemed. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So what he's saying is this. He's saying that as a Christian, the record of debt that stood against you, you individually had a record of debt that stood against you and condemned you as guilty. That has been nailed to the cross through the power of the gospel. And thus he has disarmed the rulers. So when Satan comes accusing you, and saying you're this and you're that. You're no good and you're a loser and this and that. You say, no, no, no. That has all been. Na- well, actually, that is true. But it's all been taken. And it's been forgiven. It's been nailed to the cross. So you don't have to capitulate to failure after failure after failure. Because you have the gospel. And all those sins have been nailed to the cross. You've been, you've been given freedom. You have a new identity. You're a Christian now. You're a follower of Christ. You've been washed in his blood. You've been saved from your sins. You have a name written in heaven. You're known by God. You are now his child, no longer under the power of the evil one. So, folks, this is a profound text. It highlights Christ as glorious. And it calls us to walk as he walked. Because of what he has done for us. So let's take a few minutes now. And I'm going to open us in prayer. And elders are going to close us in just a few minutes. Uh, when we pray, we're speaking to God about the work that he's done for us. We're thankful. We're grateful. Perhaps we're confessional. But I would ask you just to pray loudly so we can join with you. I would ask you to pray briefly. And what I mean by briefly, just so that you know what I mean by briefly, it is pray briefly so that other people can pray. Um, I was reminded by two friends about something called the breath prayers, which is, you know, don't pray any longer. If you have to breath, if you have to breathe, you pray too long. And I'm not trying to limit prayers here. I'm just trying to make it so that we as a body can corporately come together and worship him uh, together. And uh, so I'll begin and the elder will close us. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this son that has been faithful. He is worthy to carry the entire plan of redemption. The covenant of grace is upon him and he's going to carry it to completion for us, and we rejoice in his work. Give us the grace to walk by faith after him.